across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pies! My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? Delicious. <laughs> Good afternoon and welcome to Flavour, bringing you food and drink news and stories from the Cambridge area with Alan Alder, Sue Bailey and me, Matt Bentman. Today we bring you all sorts of good news, including a new book about biscuits from Lizzie Collingham. We have tips on preserving food from Steve Thompson, the foraging chef. Dave Fox from Trumpington Allotments has advice to keep you busy and active if you're growing your own fruit and vegetables. And we've plenty of food news from across the city. But first, we hear from councillor Alex Collis on the work of the Community Food Hub in helping families who are struggling to get sufficient food as a result of COVID-19. So we had a network of eight community food hubs across Cambridge in different parts of the city since April-May time last year as part of the Cambridge Food Poverty Alliance, headed up by Cambridge Sustainable Food with the City Council, who I represent, the County Council, faith groups. And because we have that alliance, when COVID hit, we were lucky in Cambridge because we were able to respond really quickly. Organisations like the Good Shepherds in Arbury or Hope Church in Chesterton were able to say, yes, we're able to host one of these community food hubs. We'd like to help people in our local area and supported by funding from the City Council. And as I say, overseen by Cambridge Sustainable Food, we Mm. were able to set up really quickly in response to you know the need we're seeing all around us locally we're able to set up these food hubs they work slightly differently to food banks so they're open access there's no referral needed you don't need to have a voucher a lot of the food there is surplus food there's also emergency food as well so we've worked with the cambridge food bank And really, these food hubs are places where local people can come along who need support, especially at the moment we're seeing now schools are shut. Anyone whose children are on free school meals struggling to feed their kids, you know, anyone can come along and they can pick up what they need. No questions asked. You know, I'm really proud, actually, really proud. When I look back to what we've done since last March, some fantastic volunteers Pretty much all of these food hubs are run by volunteers, maybe with a couple of paid members of staff. So I now, as a job, run Cherry Hinton Food Hub. But everybody else there is uh, are volunteers. And it's just been a fantastic effort. It's been great. Local businesses as well, particularly hospitality businesses, and as your listeners know, are really struggling at the moment. Restaurants, cafes, and they've all helped. We've had Mark Poynton's team helping us out. Steak and Honour turned up the last holiday. I think it was the October half term with one of their vans at a couple of the venues. And they cooked all day and they gave out hundreds of burgers. So it's a real team effort. It's been great. It's just 
really frustrating when you see all of that capacity and all of that will to help and people really putting themselves out to support their neighbours and then you see what the government's doing or well not doing is more like it the constant struggle just to get them to acknowledge what people need and the support they need it's in turns infuriating. So I spent most of yesterday putting together a video of what we would typically give out at the food hub each mm. week and comparing that to the ridiculous amounts of food that Chartwells were giving out. I spent most of yesterday in a fury looking at this food and, and just not understanding why the government can't or won't do what's needed. And it's infuriating, but it's also really exhausting. It feels like we're having to push for every little concession the latest announcement that schools aren't going to be expected to give out vouchers over february half term it 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 beggars belief it's astonishing you know we've seen the summer term half term the autumn half term we at the food hubs and the same happening in cities all over the country everybody working with local families People in need on the ground saying you have to support people at half term. They can't manage, you know, people's hours are being cut. You know, we've had two half terms already. So the government knows all this and they know they should be helping and they're still not. They eventually do, you know, they get pushed into it by Marcus Rashford, who's doing an amazing job of challenging them. You know, parents and families are telling them, schools are telling them, schools are tearing their hair out. I was talking to one of the family workers at one of the Cherry Hinton primary schools yesterday, in fact, when our food hub is open on a Wednesday afternoon. And just the frustration on her face. She just couldn't believe what they're having to deal with on top of everything else. It's outrageous. We have lots of regulars at the food hub, people we see most weeks. But we've definitely, in the last couple of weeks, especially this week, since schools have been shut we have definitely seen more families and families with large numbers of children. People that we haven't seen before that are just, there's just not enough to go around. I was talking to one woman in the queue who has four children and she'd come to us, it was about half two in the afternoon. She was quite distressed actually and she told me she got three loaves of bread out of the freezer that morning and she had half a loaf left because the children are just, they're cold, they're hungry. You know, they're at home, obviously, all the time. They need to eat. And she said they'd already gone through seven pints of milk, and that was most of what she had for the week in terms of bread and milk. And she just didn't know where she was going to get stuff from. Cambridgeshire County Council, I understand, was going to be giving out vouchers anyway, but I think there's talk about a delay in processing those vouchers. Um, and parents can't wait for a week for a voucher. They can't wait a day for a voucher. Yeah, yeah. They need, you know, they they need to be able to feed their children. And you know, I I dread to think what is happening in places where there isn't something like a community food hub or you know, a food bank, or you know, if people don't know about them or they can't get to them. I mean, you try travelling across Cambridge with four children on a bus and carrying back bags of food. It's the government are just making it harder than it needs to be. And it's just really disappointing to see them. They don't appear to be learning anything mm. from any of this. I am so furious. I just don't think I've ever been this cross. Yeah. It's just, 
if struggling local businesses and volunteers and churches and you know the mosque has been great and they can do it the government can do it i mean come on if you'd like to support the work of the food hub and its network around the city you can make a donation via their website cambridgesustainablefood.org if you go along the top of their webpage, there is a link that you can click on. It's called Donate. And of course, if you'd like to get more involved, you can also join them as a volunteer to help. Their website is just full of information and you can find out up-to-the-minute info via their Twitter feed, at Food Cambridge, and also on Instagram, where they are known as Cambridge Sustainable Food. That's all one word, Cambridge Sustainable Food. On to our first news break. And there is some very cheering news, not least the reopening of Cambridge Market, which happens on Monday. Uh, We won't go into our feelings about this matter. Let's just say we were not impressed that it was closed in the first place. Yeah, and by the way, the City Council has just published its plans to develop the Market Square. More on that in future editions of Flavour. News now about food trucks and where they can be found this weekend. And for all these, please order in advance via their website or social media. Steak and Honour is at the Bank Micropub at 9 High Street, Willingham tonight, Saturday from 5 till 8pm. Gorilla Kitchen is at Munson's Brewery in Newmarket tonight from 5 till 8. Uh, Also tonight at Thirsty in Chesterton Road is Pimp My Fish. And tomorrow the Pimpers of Fish are at Trumpington Meadows from 12 till 3. Churros Bar is at Trumpington Meadows outside Sainsbury's tonight from 5 to 8, while in Hobson Square, Trumpington, it's the Wandering Yak from 5.30 till 8.30. And tomorrow, a new truck, Toast on Cheese, is there. Uh, we haven't got a time for that, so check social media. Ahazar Food Van is at Northstow tonight from 6 till 9. And, by the way, Pimp My Fish has a regular slot at Trumpington's Hobson Square. It's every Friday lunchtime. Now, here's something to cheer us all up, a book about biscuits. It's by local writer Lizzie Collingham, and I asked her how she came to write it. I started off writing PhD about the British body uh, in India and about how you use posture and gesture and cleanliness and what you eat in order to signal uh, power and status and how you use your body as an instrument of rule in a way. So that led me on to write a book about curry because I got interested in the British relationship with Indian food and so on. And then after that, oh, I went off to look at uh, food as a weapon of war, food in conflict during the Second World War. Conflict leads to hunger, to starve people. Then went back to the empire uh, about food in the British Empire and about how food and trade in food was a driver towards empire. And then biscuits kept on popping up. So biscuits pop up in all of these. So biscuits, you know, if you were a British memsar here being carried in your palanquin through the Mofferville, up country, out in the wild, you'd take a tin of biscuits with you and some coffee or tea to have in your palanquin as emergency food. Or if you're a sailor or an explorer, you'd, of course, stock up with enormous quantities of biscuits. Biscuits kept on coming up. I mean, also, if you think about 19th century novels or 18th century novels, Mrs. Gaskell's ladies in North and South quarrel about biscuits and whether you should serve biscuits or sponge cake and whether one would be vulgar or the other. And Jane Austen people sort of commenting on the quality of the rout cakes, which were a form of biscuit at parties and sort of the way of looking down their nose at people. So biscuits kept on coming up. So I just thought, oh, I'm going to look into what is this going on with biscuits? Why are the British so obsessed with them? Why are they so important? And so I thought I'd, I'd investigate some more. And a lovely topic to choose, actually. Biscuits 
go back to the year dot, basically. As soon as we domesticated grain, we ended up making biscuits. But so there are many old recipes for biscuits, and I decided to try them out. So I was thinking of, oh, I'll put 17th century biscuit recipes in my book. Actually, I tried them out with uh, quite a lot of ladies who do Zumba with me. We tried them all out, and it's quite a lot of really quite disgusting. So we decided we'd just put them in the book as examples rather than recipes, the ones that at the end of the chapter are actually quite yummy biscuits. We did um, eat and try a lot of biscuits. Uh, rose water featured as a really uh, dominant flavour. And I actually quite like rose water, but when my daughter said, oh, I hope you're not making more of those rose water ones, Mum... Yeah, I tied a lot of biscuits and got very fat in the process. Oh dear, I think one's allowed to indulge. Probably one of the difficult things. Now, it took you about, well, how many years did it take you to write? Yeah, well, it took me about, I'd say about a year, to, well, maybe two years from beginning writing the first proposal to actually getting it on the tables in the bookshops. It took me about two years. So I did it comparatively quickly. I was really lucky. So I was doing the last dribbly bits of research in the library in March, just as we were going to go into lockdown. And so I was really fortunate that I was writing the, I'd got to the stage where in lockdown I could actually just write. It is a bit difficult because I can't get into libraries and so on now again. Really lucky. So the timing was perfect. So everybody was saying, oh, I've got nothing to do now. I'm not working. I'm clearing out my cupboards. And I was thinking, I'm sitting here typing. I've got lots to do. Ross, hurry up very well occupied all during lockdown. So when did you deliver the manuscript? I remember last Christmas, I didn't have any time off because I, was, I must have delivered it at the beginning in January. It was coming back. I was doing the last bits of research and then it came back to me and so I was editing it. Yeah, and then I was fiddling with it all the way through. I have a wonderful editor called Jörg who, Henskin who writes all kinds of useful comments and very helpful. So that process... I was doing that during lockdown. But then, of course, there's the issue of once the book actually gets published, of the promotion of the book. No, I haven't been able to do anything live for that, but I've done lots of interviews. I actually did a wonderful literary festival in uh, South Africa over Zoom, and I think people are really relieved to have something that isn't gloomy to read about. So biscuits are doing quite well, I think. Escape for a few minutes. Have you been baking biscuits during lockdown? During that first lockdown, I was doing, because uh, the recipes hadn't been finished, I was doing lots of last-minute experiments and things. So, yes, I was baking away like that. Do you now think you have a favourite, or are they all lovely, or are you fed up to the back teeth of your biscuits? I guess, in a way, my the biscuit that I, I'm most sentimental about is the Garibaldi. And whenever everyone, I could hear everyone groaning, going, ooh, why would you eat that? It's horrible. I, but I quite like Garibaldi, and I've actually got a recipe for the book for fresh Garibaldi. And they taste really yummy. The reason why I like Garibaldi so much is because I associate them with my granddad. So he really, he was a Yorkshire, he was a Sheffield steel worker and he used to call them uh, squashed flies and he'd, we'd always have a squashed fly biscuit with our morning cup of tea. And so I kind of have a sentimental association. I think that most people, they, they do, you develop your preferences for biscuits when you're a kid. You have all these kind of sentimental, nostalgic association. You know, having your digestive with your orange squash at playgroup was another one that I really remember. So digestive. I think uh, biscuits are very um, nostalgic food. And I remember club biscuits in my lunchbox. Oh, yes. You see, they were designed to go in kids' lunchbox after the Second World War. They're, 
they were called Crawfords at the time, and they came out of the war as, as the least popular biscuit-making company. So they decided to change things by going for children. So that's when they invented the wagon wheel, so this sort of strange combination of marshmallow and jam and biscuit and chocolate, and put it in a wrapping with cowboys on that would appeal to kids, and that was a sort of standard lunchbox item. Jacobs invented the club uh, before, just before the war in the 1930s. Of course, there was the Kit Kat and so on. And so that was a kind of war between the biscuit companies for which biscuit would go in your lunchbox. You were doing, your mother was doing exactly what they wanted her to do by putting them in your lunchbox. Another question, if you like snobbery around biscuits and the fact that biscuits were sort of first commercially made um, in about the sort of 1830s, is that right, on a large scale, but they were considered to be acceptable rather than a commercially made cake? Yes. So the first person to set up a biscuit-making machine in his factory was Cars of Carlisle. The first designated sort of biscuit factory was set up by uh, Thomas Huntley and George Palmer in Reading. In 18, It was opened in 1846. Of course, at that point, you know, biscuits made by machines were fancy and chic, you know, it, and untouched by human hand. This was an incredible thing. You know, biscuits are one of the first foods to be made by machinery, and so it was a quite kind of a splendid, fancy, modern thing. And it sort of demonstrated Britain's industrial progress and so on. But, of course, they were expensive. So they were mass-producing these biscuits, but not selling them at mass production prices. So most people, certainly the people who made the biscuits in the factory, could never have afforded them. You'd pay two shillings a pound for iced rout cakes, which was their fanciest biscuits, and you'd still pay sixpence a pound for ginger nuts, which was the cheapest. So they're expensive food if you bought the day's wages for an ordinary labourer, or half their wages. So biscuits were a very bourgeois, middle-class thing, and they were advertised as such. Huntley and Palmer's have all these adverts, these trade cards with fancy people in um, fancy clothes, with beautiful houses, playing middle-class sports, tennis, a genteel thing. And it was okay then to serve Huntley and Palmer's biscuits. So biscuits in a tin were part of the paraphernalia of the genteel bourgeois lifestyle, but it would have been awfully common, unfortunate work, but that's how people would have thought about it, to serve shop-bought cake. People would have looked down their nose at that, but to serve industrial biscuits, that's fine. Biscuits fit into the snobbery of food. So biscuits were something you would serve in the 18th century with wine, for hard sponge fingers. Biscuits come into Britain from Italy, from Renaissance Italy, as hard, dry sponge fingers. Often the, they were sort of seen as a medical thing, so they'd often have caraway seeds in, which were seen as a cure for windy colic. Biscuits were a kind of halfway food between a medicine and a sweet treat. You would serve them at the end of a meal and dip them in your sweet wine, and they would sweeten your breath if they had aniseeds in them or caraway seeds to settle the digestion. And so biscuits were something you'd serve with wine. At tea parties in Cranford, Mrs. Gaskell has her ladies serving sponge fingers with the wine, which is served at the end of a kind of evening entertainment after you've played your cards. Then Mrs. Jameson comes along, who's much more, who's wealthier, and she serves sponge cake. And there's all a bit sort of, oh dear, if she's serving sponge cake, are we going to have to run to putting, affording eggs and so on? A lot of snobbery and heart. there's an incredibly complex and interesting hierarchy going on with food. And biscuits managed to stay up at the top as a fairly bourgeois thing to eat until Second World War. But by then, they, they, they shift into becoming something more boring that you have with tea. And they've sort of lost 
that aura of bourgeois high status. Unless you buy fancy Florentines, I guess. It's fascinating to know that there is so much style snobbery and history behind us, what we would think of as now as a humble biscuit. If you dig into any foodstuff, you start uncovering layer, especially one that goes back as far as biscuit. I mean, basically biscuits were made in Mesopotamia. They would make, uh, they would malt barley and in order to make beer and in order to keep it, they would make it into bread and then they would slice the loaves of bread and dry them out until they became stone hard and then into biscuits. Yeah, biscuit means twice cooked by cocktails. And then when you wanted to make beer, you could take your stone hard rusks, mash them up, put them, add them with water to water, warm it up to make a mash, put honey or date juice in and leave it to ferment and hey presto, you've got beer. So biscuits go back a really long way. And if you've got a, some a food stuff that goes back this far, you can have endless variations and stories. The first people to add sugar to make sweet biscuits are confectioners in Baghdad. Sweet biscuits are a Muslim invention because in Iraq, they perfected the art of sugar refinery. And of course, everybody had made twice-baked bread biscuits and rusks and so on to store bread or to eat if you were going on a journey or for your soldiers or sailors. But of course, sugar was seen as this incredibly perfect, wonderful food that kept the body in balance and harmony with the cosmos in, in Baghdad in the 8th century. And so, of course, you would add sugar to the, to the bread dough when you were making bread, and then you get sweet, hard biscuits like biscotti. They also perfected the art of distilling flowers, so rose water, so that's a real Islamic flavoring, so it adds rose water, or they might add figs and nuts to warm you up. So they make little pockets of dough filled with figs and nuts to eat during the winter because these were seen as warming foods. So that was kind of a medicine. Still today, it's traditional at Christmas time in Italy to make fig roll type biscuits. So fig rolls could have a very long, uh, prestigious history, really. Do you have a website and what's the best way of, of purchasing your book and following oh. you and finding out more about you? You know, I'm still trying to set up my website keep on trying to do it and I, I keep on failing I'm not a techie person but the way to buy my book uh, all good bookshops will have it if you want to support your independent bookshop there's of course bookshop.org if you're trying to buy everything online at the moment so rather than going to Amazon which of course sell it you can go to bookshop.org and they are uh, an online platform for independent booksellers it's available pretty widely and the title of the book again is The Biscuit the history of a very British indulgence. And another online source for the book is hive.co.uk, which is a British company. It's offering a discount of more than £4 on Lizzie's book and usually dispatches within 48 hours. More news now, and in this section we include delivery and collection news, and a new menu from Pint Shop is on the way and will be announced shortly. The Oyster Lab is currently trialling a delivery menu. Oris and Sons have a new outlet for their products. It's Stir in Chesterton Road. Their hot sauces are definitely worth a try. Maison Clement has resumed its delivery service. Signorelli is delivering its breads, croissants and pizzas through Click It Local. Because of the pandemic, the Edge Cafe in Mill Road is closed. However, its food hub will remain open from 11am to 1pm, Monday to Saturday, for those who need it. For the next two weeks, Urban Larder will be closed on Monday and Tuesday. It will be open from Wednesdays to Sundays from 8 till 4. 
also closed and trying to raise funds is Thrive in Norfolk Street. They need financial support and you can give some on the website crowdfunder.co.uk slash helping dash thrive dash two dash survive. And there's a reward for contributions of £30 or more. However, they are open this weekend only for takeaways and delivery until 6pm today, Saturday, and from 10 till 6 tomorrow. Details on social media. Scott's All Day has been offering 50% off its pizzas on Tuesdays and Wednesdays, but to try to get closer to breaking even, it is retaining a pizza offer, but having to reduce that to 25% off. Uh, Restaurant 22 has begun a collection service called 22 at Home on Fridays and Saturdays beginning this very weekend and I shall be having one so I'm very pleased. You order on Thursday nights from 7pm from the uh, from the Restaurant 22 website but do beware they sell out very quickly. The cost is £45 per person. Provenance Kitchen is starting a takeaway Sunday roast starting on the 31st of January. Book on the website provenancekitchen.com Cambridge Cookery are doing gourmet menus with the option of having it delivered by bike. The minimum order is £27 and there is a £6 charge for bike delivery and you need to be within two miles. Orders are by Wednesday noon unless they've sold out by then. The Modern Table is continuing with collections from Burwash Manor and from Meadows in Eltersley Avenue. Details on the Modern Table website. Camp's Cuisine meal kits are back. The first of their Sunday Classics kit was delivered last night and their Pie Night Inns are available for delivery from this Thursday. Book via Click It Local. I'm free. I'm free. Here's where we bring you details of free food available now in and around Cambridge. The information about what's available and where to get it comes from the Olio app which is free to download. And here's some examples of what's been recently available locally on the Olio app. Uh, Various items from Tesco, including baguettes and Earl Grey tea. And moving away from Tesco, there's been energy balls, celery, Marks & Spencer chocolates. All of this is, of course, for nothing. And another free app called Too Good To Go has unsold food from restaurants and shops, often at less than half price. Uh, And rather than specifying each leftover item, the surplus food is simply packaged as a magic bag, ready for you to take home instead of being binned at the end of the day's trading. We do try to keep flavour positive, but there are some stories which just aren't an ode to joy. Uh, As we all know, there's now a trade agreement with the European Union. Flavour spoke with a couple of local businesses about it. The good news came from Bacchanalia in Mill Road and Victoria Road, and they're saying that as a result of the new trade agreement, they're not seeing any major changes to supplies. They are in touch with wine brokers in London who say the effect will be minimal, if at all noticeable. But the position for local businesses who import perishable goods directly from Europe themselves is not at all good as Alan discovered when he spoke to Zoltan Bogarty of Culinaris, also of Mill Road. Are any of your supplies being affected by by Brexit, by the trade agreement? Yeah, all of them. This is now a very, very, very complicated process. We have a shipment now from Tuscany of Pecorino cheese. Placed the order literally on Sunday, January 3rd. So it just sets the system. And that shipment will maybe leave 
Syrian hub tomorrow. The, 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 the goods were ready on January 5th. So we will have goods leaving on the 15th and we'll get them maybe 19th, 20th. Before Brexit, this would take exactly two and a half days. Gosh, that is a difference. And this, yeah, this is, this is, and, and this, this is only the beginning because uh, this will not be any easier because once uh, other bits and pieces of the deal come into force, like the rules of origin, but then, you know, nobody, you know, there's no guarantee there won't be any quotas. So another agency to deal with and so on and so forth. Then, you know, if, if uh, food standards diverge, uh, another level of complexity comes in. So this is, this is, this is a major change. When we go into your shop, what, what difference will we see in, in future weeks then? Just a smaller amount of produce or, or what? The changes will, will be two ways. First, I mean, all these are, you know, incur extra costs. You know, it might be only 10 pounds for one, 20 for the other, 50 euros on this, uh, 30 euros on that. But effectively, since all this paperwork is for shipment or per supplier, small producers are at a huge disadvantage because it will effectively double the delivery cost, uh, which will make these products even more expensive, which will mean that they would lose market. Some products will not be viable, you know, Scottish langoustines in, in Europe, but there will be products, uh, imported products, which will not be viable. And, and they won't be viable. They won't be viable because uh, they'll be on the their useful date. But commercially not viable. Commercially not viable. You know, if, if, if a product has twenty days shelf life and it spends seven to eight, seven to ten days in transit, by the time it's it, it's ready for sale, you lost basically half of the shelf life, which is at least a third of the value of the product. So yes, and 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 it's a small. Uh, product is diversity which will suffer that that that's clear because uh, you won't be able to mix too many producers in one shipment because uh, each producer would need a separate set of paperwork and then you know we're still talking about a phase now which doesn't have enforcement at least on 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 the UK side but once enforcement uh, will will uh, will happen. It would cause quite this, quite uh, you know probably bigger disruptions. And, and and honestly, a lot of suppliers will not will just not bother because they say like, okay, you're far, you're complicated. I'd sell my product uh, uh, locally. So what 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 are you going to do then?
shipments like this would arrive even even in the busiest December month, by Friday latest, it would be in our shop. Now, I know for sure I just hung up the phone. That shipment is still in France, and it will not leave France possibly until tomorrow. So it's still in France, and Friday it might leave France, but we don't know for sure. If it leaves France, we'll get it Tuesday. If it doesn't leave France, then we'll get it next Friday. Gosh. And those, some of those cheeses are fresh. So we'll see. I, I, I have no idea. Well, we'll sell right. <laughs> but but it, it, it's the same all over the place. It's, uh, you know, small shops or, or, or shops selling uh, products from small producers will, will probably will suffer. But even, even, even supermarket chains will see a loss of choice. And uh, even if they say that prices will not go up, eventually they will. They just didn't, there were no negotiations on, on who will take on the cost of, uh, of, of all this. Uh, it's clear that the supply chains will not work as they were. They will be more, much longer, and 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 food, food choice will probably suffer. So the discounters will do good because they don't have a big choice and they don't have a big supplier base. But everybody else, and ultimately the consumer, will will suffer. And that was Zoltan Bogarty of Culinaris. And isn't it ironic that among the major beneficiaries of the trade agreement are discount stores like Aldi and Lidl, uh, while small independents will suffer? Uh, Let's give them as much support as we can. We'll be back after the break with Dave Fox and then The Foraging Chef. Cambridge 105 Radio. Kickstart your weekend. Saturday Breakfast with Matt Webb. I'm here every weekend to get you moving. I have the latest from the Cambridge News Desk on the hour and half hour. Problems on the A14, Newmarket Road or Mill Road? Well, if there are, you'll be the first to know in the travel. There's a full sports roundup at 8.30, including what's happening at Cambridge United and our other local clubs. Plus a look at the Saturday papers and local online publications at 10 to 9. That's Saturday Breakfast with me, Matt Webb, this weekend from 8. If you're like me, you've got a family and a business. And you want to protect what's most important when the chips are down. With Woodfine Solicitors, that's exactly what happens. I got a bespoke legal service from a friendly expert team. They really listened to what was going on and tailored their recommendations to my situation, which was, well, that's another story. Anyway, the best thing was that it all happened online. A few simple clicks and I had my quote. That freed up time to focus on everything else. Get the help you need when you need it most. Visit woodfinds.co.uk or call Cambridge 411421. Woodfinds, cutting through the red tape. What does your home need to feel complete? Gap Home Improvements have been helping customers give their properties that curb appeal for over 20 years. You've seen our vans in your area providing dedicated support to families across Cambridgeshire. Windows, doors, garden rooms, conservatories and warm roofs. We offer free quotations in a pressure-free environment. In person, on the phone or by video call, our consultants will help you realise your property's true potential. Call Cambridge 914-567 or visit gaphomeimprovements.co.uk today. Cambridge 105 Radio. Uh, 
welcome back for this edition of Flavour. We were looking for good news, something that will make us feel better. Uh, And one thing is having something enjoyable to do, preferably outdoors and maybe, for those of us for whom it's a bit lacking from our lives, involving a bit of physical work. A lot of people enjoy growing their own fruit and veg in lockdown one, uh, maybe for the first time. Dave Fox of Trumpington Allotments in Foster Row told us it certainly led to more people visiting their allotments. Because of the uh, pandemic and lockdown, lots of people being on furlough, I think actually many of our members have had more time to get to the allotments. And overall, our site is looking better used, more cultivated than I can remember. Um, And that's brilliant. There's a few plots which are completely... um, untended and that's because there's a couple of uh, extremely vulnerables who haven't been wanting to come at all Um, and also there's at least one key worker who's you know working all hours that they have Mm. in order to look after people at the hospital which is nearby Mm. so uh, I spoke to Dave some little while ago about getting success this year uh, to help us feel good and also to get us doing something that raises the spirit and gets us out and about just doing something. So what can be done in January? And he started by explaining how useful it is to spread compost over the over the plot. It nourishes the soil, reduces the chances of weeds growing, helps with water retention. But what else can be done in January? So so January, I mean, it's, it's a generally a very quiet month on, on the allotment, but one thing that we will be doing then is pruning the fruit trees and bushes in order to stimulate them into producing more of what we want. So on the whole, we want to have a smaller number of larger fruits rather than a larger number of small fruits. So that involves um, restricting the growth of the fruit trees and stimulating the growth of new new material for instance on black currants which produce fruit on branches which are two three and four years old and then after that those branches become really too old so what you want to do is cut out anything that's five years old take away about a quarter of the the quarter of the bush and and january february is the right time to do that because the, the sap is down um, and also because you've not got much else to do uh, other than uh, spreading compost but also planning so you know you, you might be eager to start sowing seeds in January and um, on, uh, on one or two of the Facebook groups I follow you, you get you see a lot of you see a lot of novices who say right what can I sow right now you know they've probably been given some kit or a bag of seeds for Christmas and they, and they, well, they want to get on with it and I would generally say hang on some some things like peppers and aubergines they're pretty slow growing so if you've been gifted a lovely propagator and a light system lucky you santa came up with the goods if you've got that then yeah maybe start your peppers and aubergines off at the end of january but if you if you haven't got kit like that then the plants are going to get too 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 leggy that's thin and tall growth that is going to become make make for a weak plant in the in the long run so better just to hang on and sow those seeds end of february start of march and um then you'll end up with stronger plants that will still that will still catch up but what you can do is prepare so you're going to be um using pots or seed trays get them clean if you've got a propagator figure out where, you, where you're going to where you're going to put it if you've got a greenhouse clean it clear it clear it out so do some of those jobs that um 
don't actually involve growing something. You could, if you're really keen, you could put some broad bean seeds in the ground, um, as long as it's not um, frosty. But, you know, if you put seed in and then there's a quick there's a quick frost just as the plants are germinating, that might not they, they might not do too well. So. Um, better just to hang on from sowing until February and certainly until March outside and get the other jobs and also have a rest. I mean, you know, I mean, I work like a dervish on my allotment 11 months of year in January. So I'm looking forward to having, having a, bit of, a bit of time off. And finally, if you've stored some of your produce from last year, here's another useful piece of advice. So as the weather gets colder... Um, it's as well to remember that there's a lot of hungry creatures out there so that might be a pigeon eyeing up your kale and your cabbages or it might be rodents sniffing around your store of potatoes or, or, or carrots if you keep them in a cold outhouse or something like that so just bear in mind that someone else is trying to eat your food before you do so protect it. Many thanks to Dave Fox. Some more news now. A branch of Espresso Library has opened in Cambridge. It's in St Andrew Street by the entrance to the Grand Arcade. A new curry business has set up by Henry of the Oyster Lab. Uh, nothing to do with oysters. Uh, it will be delivering a curry which will change weekly each Friday. Cost is £14 per head to include rice, a side and delivery. Uh, more information from Paul's Authentic on Instagram. But on the subject of the Oyster Lab itself, they are trialling a delivery service right now, which is very good news. Good news too for fish lovers. Fish fans are back. Paul is at Burwash Larder on Tuesdays from 11 till 1 and Ben is in Grantchester Street, Newnham on Saturdays from 8.30 until about 12.15. Scott's All Day has a new menu item. It's buffalo chicken wings with ranch sauce. They can be delivered or collected. Shelford Deli is open from Tuesday till Saturday from 9 till 4.30. You can order online to pick up and you can browse in the shop too. Meanwhile, Hill Street Chocolates in All Saints Passage is temporarily closed because of the pandemic, but it is still open in Hill Street, Saffron Walden, and its chocolates are still available by delivery. Just go to their website. Now, Steve Thompson, the foraging chef, but this month not foraging as he explains. I think basically January is normally known as a quiet month. There's plenty still to forage, but I think we've covered most of it over the last month or so. And what we haven't covered last month, we'll cover next. So um, we're going to talk about, yeah, my five favourite methods of preservation. There's plenty more, loads more to look in. We're just kind of going to go skim through them. And then uh, there's examples of pretty much all of them on my social media, so you can have a look through and find some recipes and things like that. And that's The Foraging Chef? Yeah, The Foraging Chef on Facebook or Chef Steve Thompson on Instagram. So, what are your favourite five? So, first of all, we'll start off with drying, so dehydration. So, you're basically preser uh, preserving by taking away the moisture. It's a simple way of doing it. Mushrooms is a prime example. Is by no means limited to it. So, you can dry out as, as is, slice up dry. You can cook certain things and dry them. A lot of things that we'll, we'll use, we tend to powder, to be entirely honest. We dry out at different temperatures at different times. It's really about having a play whether you want a low temperature to keep the flavour in, whether you want to dry something quickly at a high temperature to keep flavour in. It's all down to personal preference. It's all down to kind of learning and playing around with it. Would you recommend an oven or a dehydrator or what would you suggest? I would obviously recommend um, getting a dehydrator, but they're expensive. Just to get a good quality home one, you want to spend about 80 to 100 quid. You can pick them up for 30 quid, but they're not going to last you huge amounts if you're doing any quantity. 
can do it in an oven with a wooden spoon in the door, with the oven on pilot light kind of thing, just to keep the air coming in. You could do it in an airing cupboard. You could do it naturally in the sun in the summer when we sometimes get some. So pilot light or something like 50 degrees centigrade, 100 degrees, what would you suggest? I wouldn't go as high as 100, but yeah, 50 works quite well for a lot of things. Yeah, anything up to about 90, really. But it, again, it depends. We're working at the moment on uh, dehydrating velvet shanks for a long period of time at a warm temperature to give them a dark chocolate quality. We're slightly overburning them. Most of your mushrooms, your giant puffballs, say, for instance, we make, we dry that out into a powder and we use that to thicken a gravy. Or hogweed seeds to use it as an actual spice. I mean, you can use the seed whole dried and use them for infusing, but we quite often powder them again, and then we can just use it as any other ground spice, which gives a lovely cardamom orangey flavour. Um, what else do we do? Rose hips, they're another one that are great powdered. We powder them down and we use them to cure salmon for our brunch menu up at the plough. And so when you say powder, so that means you really are removing as much moisture as you possibly can and then liquidising it, putting in a spice grinder, something like that? Yeah, coffee grinder, fine blender, pestle and mortar, anything like that. The name of the game with drying something out is to remove the moisture. And then that means that if you've removed the moisture, you won't get any microorganisms or moulds or whatever forming and then you can preserve it for quite a long time. Exactly this, yeah. It takes away their fuel, basically, so they've got no way of... Without moisture, they're not going to reproduce and they're not going to survive. And so how long could you keep a dehydrated forage product for, ideally? If it's dried out well and kept in an tight container, I can't see any reason why indefinitely. I took um, notice of what you were saying about when it was the lovely wild garlic times and I dehydrated some wild garlic leaves. I blitzed them up, powdered them. They're in a little container waiting to be added to things. No, it's a great way. We do it a lot at home as well. So we always have a spice cupboard with lots of them in and they're great added. I mean, you really can go anywhere. You can add them to your pastries, your breads. Mushroom pastries are wonderful. So for your pie crust, when you're making your short crust pastry, add some mushroom powder, just substitute it for a little bit of the flour, whack that in your pastry. Jobs are good. And what would be your second method? It's one that I'm doing a lot. So if you follow me online at the moment, it's one that we're really playing around with because I think that the way it develops flavours is really interesting. And it's lacto-fermentation. It's uh, very fashionable at the moment. It's turning basically the natural sugars in a product into lactic acid. Basically, it adds an acidity to whatever you're fermenting. But it also, the longer you ferment, I find it mellows out flavours. Classically, say, hot sauces are fermented. Instead of making them more fiery or anything, it actually calms the chilies and calms the flavours. So you actually enjoy the flavour of the product more than the actual intenseness of it, maybe. It's the best way to describe it. So say, for instance, wild garlic is uh, one that we ferment a lot. And wild garlic, as you know, can be really, really overpowering. And fermenting it just gives it that real nice, acidic, kind of mellow, sweet, but you are turning some of the sugars into acid, but it still retains some if you don't ferment it for too long. Um, it gives it that lovely garlic flavour without the garlic burn you can get from it. And are there any things you need to be careful about from a, a safety point of view with lacto-fermentation? Yeah, totally. Uh, the most important thing is to check your pH at the end. Now, you can get a pH meter off anywhere online, really. It's very, very important that your pH is 4.6 or below. That means that it's too acidic for bad bacteria to survive in. You want to encourage the growth of the lactobacilli, which is the bacteria you're encouraging. So maybe add a little bit of a starter that you already know has turned. Maybe use a little bit of a probiotics tablet in there or something like that, because that will then start to fight off and protect it. And the other thing you want to do is salt. Salt is your friend here. So we keep it in the restaurant as low as physically possible. 
So we add 2% salt, and that's just enough to keep away things like botulism. But you can go higher, and the higher you go, the more protected it'll be. Higher in terms of percentage of salt, okay. Yeah, okay. so you could go 3%, 4%, 5%, and then it'll be more and more protected. If you're getting below 4.6, uh, 4.6 pH, then you're fine anyway. And a low pH is obviously indicative of high acidity. Yes, exactly. So that means that it's working, the bacteria is turning the sugars into lactic acid. Lactobacillus, which you mentioned, is one that would be typically in yoghurt, is that right? Yes, exactly that. Yoghurts, your buttermilks. Basically, as long as you read up about what you're doing and make sure that you check the pH, then that's absolutely fine to experiment around with that area. Yeah, there's a couple of really good books. I mean, especially on the wild food side of fermentation, uh, a guy called Pascal Balder. He does one on wild fermentation that talks about it a lot more in depth than we are now. For more advanced restaurant in Copenhagen called Noma does a wonderful book on oh, fermentation, yes. which mm-hmm. is, it has every different kind of fermentation, but it does talk about lacto in there as well. What would be your third method then? Right, we're going to talk about uh, candide. So candide is the process of basically preserving your sugar syrup and the sugar at the end. The example that we've got a recipe for that's out on the social media is Alexander Stems. And Angelica's another one that can be done. And that was the inspiration for doing it with the Alexanders. They're part of the same family. And candying, in fact, used to be done a lot, didn't it, as a method of preservation for um, almost like sort of little sweet sockets and so on, I gather they were called. Exactly that. And it works. It's very simple to do. It's very easy. You're boiling something up in sugar syrup. You're partly drying it. You're chucking it through sugar and you're drying it some more. And you get this wonderful chew out of it. You get a lovely sweetness and things like like the Alexander's. I think it works best with punchy flavours. Otherwise, it gets overpowered by the sweetness. But things like Alexander's, which are really strong, hence why people do it a lot with lemon and lime and things like that. Candied peel, as often people have used a lot in the past and, and perhaps coming back to using again. What about candied flowers, things like violets and primroses and so on? They used to be very popular. Would you have a go at doing those? Yeah, well, you crystallise them more, don't you, with egg whites and sugar and bake them in. Um, it has to be a very strong flower, in my opinion, to work. I know a lot of people do it, but I think it's it can be used a lot more for show. My favourite things to do with certain flowers, like dandelions, we make into marmalade, which is a wonderful thing to do. Um, a lot of flowers we tend to dry out and use and infuse. Adding that level of sugar can overpower the flower, floral flavour. What's the sort of percentage of sugar syrup would you use? I think I normally use about 100% and do it quite sweet, but you can go much less. But you are coating it again in sugar at the end anyway. There's not really any avoiding it being sweet. If you're thinking about preservation, if you're thinking about jams and marmalades anyway, you wouldn't be going below 60% if you like sugar concentration. So as long as you're above that, then that should be all right. Yeah, exactly. So what would be your fourth preservation method? Um, pickling. It's nice and easy. There is so many ways of doing it. You can do sweet, you can do salty. You can do acidic pickles where you just pickle them in vinegar. But it's a very, very easy, fluid way of preserving things. And you can do it on the go. So, for instance, we quite often go on holiday and go get, I won't say where, but we go pick a lot of mushrooms to keep us going in our personal larder. And we quite often take the pickling liquid up there with us, pick them, clean them, and just chuck them in. You can boil them up in there, but again, it's we'll quite often, we'll talk about one one way of pickling, basically, which we do, which is sweet pickling. But we call it, it's called the one, two, three method, basically. So we do one part vinegar, two parts sugar, three parts water. That's nice and simple to remember. Really easy. And you bring them all up to the boil until the sugar's dissolved. That is it. And then presumably add in any flavourings that you wish. I tend to not. 
I tend to wear on that if I want something preserved, I want it to taste of what I'm preserving. Sounds a great idea. A lot of people would disagree and they'll put, yeah, you're pickling spices in, your coriander seeds, your mustard seeds, all that kind of thing, peppercorns. I, I genuinely like to keep it very plain and I take that flavour and then we can manipulate that flavour on the dish. That works great with things like mushrooms, again, with fruit. I wouldn't say it works as well with leaves, but I have done it with nuts before, especially things like walnuts, obviously, when they're green is a great way of preserving them. We brine them first and then then we sweet pickle them. And just put it into the cold pickling liquor. You don't have to heat it or anything. It entirely depends on what you're doing. But I tend to do a lot of cold pickling, and then if I wanted it heated or cooked through, then we do that at a later date. So what is your fifth method, then? The last one is ketchup which kind of leads on from the pickled. It's basically like a pickled puree is the best way to describe it, I think. Or a sweet and sour sauce. Classically, they're a lot, lot thinner. I'm talking about kind of more inspired by the Heinz ketchup, that kind of consistency. So we make loads and loads of them. It's a lovely way, again, there's two different ways to preserve them for a long time. is to make sure they're below the 4.6 pH, which is kind of the magic acidity level, or you can just can. Canning is a bit more tricky to do domestically, and I know one's always got the risk of botulisms. Pickling's probably the safer method, isn't it? I, th- I think so, yeah. Keep the acidity levels up, and yeah. then that's probably the easiest way to go. We do them with things like, say, as we just talked about, the green walnuts. We brine them for a month, I believe. Then that sort of takes us into the end of July, beginning of August. And then we put them in pickling liquor then and leave them until at least Christmas. We would literally take them with the pickling liquor and cook it right down and then blend it up. I've got a number of old recipe books and, again, catsups and ketchups. There's lots of them around in historical recipe books. Would you suggest doing things like leaf buds? I mean, is that... Obviously, capers are an example, but what sort of unusual things have you come across? What have you made ketchups out of? So, leaf buds totally, as in the whole way capers, yeah. Exactly, take two and two together. I mean, classically, mushrooms is another one that works wonderfully with them. It's a wonderful way to preserve, and we have a great recipe for chicken in the woods ketchup. The weirdest one that I've done recently isn't forage, but it was liver. So we've done a caramelised liver ketchup. So we're taking the whole premise of it being a sweet and sour sauce and blending the livers up, slow cooking them, and adding a caramel of vinegar and sugar to it. Wow. So you're reaching that level of sweet and acidity Mm. to preserve it, and it's not setting either like a parfait would. That sounds very different, and I rather like the sound of that. It's it's absolutely lovely. We had it on the menu just before we... uh, before we had to shut before Christmas. Yeah, loads and loads of things. So we'll be playing around with wild garlic, doing ketchups with that. We quite often flavour the vinegars. We'll make vinegars out of certain flavours and then add them to something later in the year. So, for instance, we did a strawberry and elderflower ketchup that we used for a dessert. It works brilliantly. The elderflower comes from, we make the elderflower vinegar, so we make the elderflower into wine and then turn that into vinegar. And then literally reduce that with sugar and add it to the strawberries. There's obviously lots of inspiration that's going to be coming up for as soon as we sort of start hitting March and April time to to get all sorts of new growing ideas, if you like. Let's hope that things are going to be looking up sometime soon for everyone in the in the sort of food industry and in the catering areas. I do hope that we'll have a chance to be tasting your forage food sometime soon. <laughs> yeah, so do I too. <laughs> yeah, I really, really do. And 
And that was Steve Thompson, the foraging chef. And this is Green Onions, which signals the start of our job section, with just two jobs today. The hole in the wall in Little Wilbraham is looking for a second chef. Pay is £10 per hour and three years' experience is preferred. Phone Cambridge 384 8616 for details. A head chef, sous chef, bar and restaurant manager are needed at the new Fellows House in Milton Road. Details and how to apply are on its website, thefellowshouse.co.uk. And that brings us to the end of the programme. We are here on Alternate Saturdays at 12pm, repeated on Sundays at 2, and then repeated again on Mondays at 6pm. There's also the podcast, of course, which will be available early in the next week. Coming up on Cambridge 105 Radio today at 1pm is the Cambridgeshire Football Show, but that's all from us. We'll be back on the 30th of January, but until then, goodbye. 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 Goodbye.